Welcome everyone, you are listening to Do We Like Murder, a segment of the Long Overdue Podcast, a production of the Decatur Public Library in Decatur, Texas. With us today, we have Denise. Hi, Denise. Hi, Chris. And Dawn. Say hello. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) And a very special (laughs) guest, sort of guest. Sort of guest. For this segment, anyway. Mm-hmm. Pat. Hello. You didn't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, That's menacingly. Right. He did not have to tell you menacingly <laughs> to say hello. <laughs> and I'm, I'm Chris, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Who else would you be? I don't know. Okay, oh, I'm, I'm, done. I'm tired of talking like that. Yeah. <laughs> go on. Go on. <laughs> So, I just want to start by saying I really liked my book. I mean, bad things happened in it. Yeah. But it was very well written. And it was very engaging mm-hmm. and kept you wanting to turn the page. Yeah. Captivating. That's good. Yeah. Mine, uh, the story was really interesting. And I mm-hmm. was like just really wanting to know what happened with this woman. Uh, the writing was not good. Um, and at some point I was there was a lot of stuff in here that I didn't need that was not really a part of the main story he was trying to tell. So there was a lot of me skipping. Like I'd get to a spot and be like, this is not about Linda. And so then I would just scan to see if her name was there and I'd be like, turn page, scan, scan, turn page. And then oh, like, wow. there, there's a the part about Linda. And then I- <laughs> And then I started mm. from there. Wow. Mine was so full of information. Like within the first 20 pages, I just have all these sticky notes. And it's like, I can't do this through the whole book. I mean, it's just so packed full of mm. really good information mm. about the whole case and all that. It was Mine's good. packed full of information, too. Just not. <laughs> not about this case. Hmm. Not what you wanted to read about. Well, mine is is really I thought it was really well written except for the prologue I don't know why it's there um, it introduces it it talks about um, Arthur Conan Doyle coming mm-hmm. to the US in 1914 and meeting with somebody named Burns who was a well-known private detective and he was called the American Sherlock Holmes well my book is called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes no relation <laughs> I mean she's not this man's wife, she's not Conan Doyle's wife, she's not a person in the books, she's her own person, has nothing to do with either of these men. This she's, was, a, she's kind of a detective is all. She, well, she, she's, a, she's a lawyer and then becomes a detective as a way of setting things right okay. in the cases that she becomes involved in. And so I don't... I. I understand the connection to Sherlock Holmes, but Mm -hmm. it was kind of a reach. I Mm -hmm. thought, why did you put that prologue in there? But after that, it was, it was great. And I, I learned more about some other cases, but it was really about this woman, the lawyer, the the detective rather than a single case, but there's one case that's the, the major part of the book. So it it didn't bother me that there Mm -hmm. were things about other cases because it Mm -hmm. really was about her in her life so 
but I thought it was really well done. Yeah, mine had a sucky prologue in it too. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's why it took me so long to like actually get into my book because I had to read yeah. that prologue like three times. I was like, what? <laughs> Well, I read the prologue and part of the first (laughs) chapter and then didn't get back to my book for about a week. I didn't notice. I didn't miss anything. Mm -hmm. You know, having forgotten all that, Mm -hmm. I just picked up where I was and went on and it was all fine. So, I don't know. Kind of strange. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. Who wants to start? I don't care. I don't even remember who went first last time. It seems like it's been. Was it me? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Let's first. start with Pat. That's what oh. I was thinking. I think that we because you're already on a roll talking about this. I think. Well, we heck yeah. Okay, so my book is called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes by Brad Ricca or Richa R I C C A. Um, I was actually surprised that this book was written by a man because it's the kind of book that I would have expected a woman to write, Mm -hmm. just because it's all about this groundbreaking woman Mm -hmm. from the early 20th century. So um, the main character, the the main person that this book is about, her name is Grace Quackenboss. Awesome. So that's her her first married name and that's the name she had when she went to law school this is 1905 wow yeah she went to nyu law school because it was the only law school anywhere in that area that would allow women to be part of the law school surprising really that anybody at that time was allowing that yeah i was surprised too i didn't realize that that anybody did so yeah um columbia wouldn't let her in um yale law school wouldn't let her you know all the big Mm -hmm. schools wouldn't let her in but nyu did and you know she she came through the program no problem at all came out of it and um she's married to a man who is not wealthy wealthy but he's got a job and he does just fine for them and she comes from money so she decides that she's going to set up kind of a legal aid sort of law firm and that's where she starts getting involved in um, cases where someone has been um, accused and indicted of a crime that there is evidence that they didn't really do it Mm -hmm. and so that's how she becomes a detective is by having to go find the evidence she she can't get anybody else to investigate these crimes that are already solved you know so Mm -hmm. um she actually um has this man named koch k-o-c-h who um uh, becomes kind of the the investigator sort of person that works with her, but she does a lot of investigating herself. She gets involved with a, a group um, that's that's trafficking young women, mm. and there's wow. and and um, also um, any gender immigrants. So it's there's one group of um, Italian immigrants that are being sent down south. They come into New York, but they're being sent down south to Mississippi, Arkansas, I think Florida Panhandle, um, 
but they're 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 being worked as slave labor. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, they're kind of indentured servants. That's the official line, Mm -hmm. but it's really not that. And it's one of those things where the only place you're allowed to shop is the company store. All the prices are jacked up. So you never make any money. And after the end of the first month, you actually owe them Mm -hmm. money. Um, after you've bought your groceries and you know paid your rent and all that, you owe them more than you made working. And everybody in the family works. So even the small children have jobs. And so she goes and investigates this because she's found related to another case that, that she ended up solving. Um, she found out about this family that... that came over looking for, you know, opportunities in the U.S., and this is where they ended up. So she um, goes down there and starts looking around. She's from New York. She doesn't know the area. She doesn't know. She's never been in the country. She's not a, a rural person. She doesn't know the wilderness or how to get along camping or anything mm-hmm. like that, but she manages to find um, a couple of people who are not in the penury system who know enough about it who are willing to talk. And so she gets them to talk about it, and this is kind of the start of um, this huge immigration reform that that happens over the next, it takes a long time, of course, but over the mm-hmm. next couple of decades, um, there's some major immigration reform that happens related to all this. And so... Um, that's that's kind of her first big foray mm-hmm. into investigation. And then the main case that this book um, focuses on is the disappearance of a, a teenage woman. Um, she's 17, 18 years old. Her name is Ruth Kruger. And her family lives on in an apartment in New York City. Um, and she just doesn't come home one day. She was going out to run some errands. She has ice skates that she had left off to be sharpened, and she's going to pick those up. She might stop by and go ice skating with this boy she met at Columbia University. She just doesn't come home that day. And so um, they... they, report it to the police that she's missing, and the police immediately say, oh, well, who did she run off with? Right. Mm -hmm. That was the immediate response. So they wait 24 hours before they ever start looking around and investigating anything. Even back then, that 24-hour rule? It wasn't a rule. They just just, did. Okay. Because for young women, Mm -hmm. their first, their automatic thought was, oh, she's run, she's eloped. She's run off with her boyfriend, you know, whatever, whatever. Well, as far as anybody knew, she didn't have a boyfriend. There was this boy she'd gone skating with a couple of times, but wasn't a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not much has changed. That's still kind of... <clears throat> right. You know, and so, and so this is, yeah, this is the frustrating away. thing about this whole, this <laughs> that, whole book. Like, none of this has changed. Is that, wait a minute, this is, this is what we see today. Um, it, so part of what... what um, Grace Quackenboss did as she was investigating all this was she was looking for um, police mis- malfeasance, police mis- 
uh, what's a good word for that? Misconduct? Misconduct is a good way. Corruption. Yeah. There are all kinds of things going on. So here's what happened. Um, we know that Ruth stopped in at the, it was a motorcycle shop where she had dropped off her skates to be sharpened because they did, they, mm-hmm. they sharpened saws and skates and things like that as, at, as part of the motorcycle shop. And people had seen her there. And so they knew she got there. But then after that, they really, they couldn't track her down anymore. Mm-hmm. Somebody thought they, they had seen a young woman that looked just like her with a young man getting into a, a carriage to, to go mm-hmm. somewhere, like a, a cab kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of thing. Um, and so they tried to investigate that. They didn't find very much. They couldn't track down anything. They didn't find the person, that, you know, the taxi driver or anything like that. Um, so this is, this is 1917. It's February 13th, the day she disappears. So within a week... Everything points to the owner of the motorcycle shop. But the police have been there. They have investigated. They have looked through the entire shop. They found nothing out of order. They found nothing strange. They do know that he and his wife, the motorcycle shop owner and his wife, yell at each other a lot. But other than that, Mm -hmm. they didn't really find anything. Mm So they keep looking, they keep looking, they keep looking. They talk, they finally track down this young man from Columbia, and he's only seen her twice. They've been ice skating at whatever place they went ice skating. Um, he hadn't seen her since then, hadn't heard from her since the last time they did that, so he didn't know anything. And all this was corroborated through other people. So mm-hmm. finally, he was off the hook. Um, but then it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And what the, what the police kept saying is, she obviously doesn't want to be found. Or somebody doesn't want her to be found. She's right. run off. At, I mean, she, she's, she goes to church. She's at Sunday school. All the people there love her. She's, she's the nicest young woman ever. And so it's not like there's a pattern of behavior. Not that that would, that would mean she would never do something out mm-hmm. of character but it's not that there is a pattern of behavior that she's doing these things that you know misguided teenagers do she is not that kind of kind of person so but the but the police have made up this entire story about how she's eloped she's blah 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 she's blah 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 well it turns out when they go back to start looking at trying to trace where she went from the motorcycle shop, the motorcycle shop owner has moved back to Italy. Oh. Just within a few days of her disappearance, the police came and checked over his whole place, and then he's gone back to Italy. Hmm. Well, his wife said... I was like, with his wife or without his wife? No, the wife is still here. She is running, supposedly running, the the motorcycle shop. And... um, she said they just had a big argument, and the reason he left had nothing to do with the disappearance of this young woman, but he knew that because he was Italian, he would get fingered for the crime. Mm-hmm. And he would get put in jail, maybe killed, all this, because he's Italian, and the way everybody thought felt about Italians. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is World War One's going on. 
So that's why he went back to Italy, because he didn't want to be um, falsely accused of this crime and then mm-hmm. end up having to serve time for something he didn't do. That's what he said. Not entirely unreasonable. Yeah. No, not entirely unreasonable. Suspicious. Yes. Mm-hmm. We start to find out that in his motorcycle shop, in the lockers in the back, he's got police uniforms hanging there. And so we start to find out that he has a relationship with all of the motorcycle cops in the area. They are on best buddy terms. He fixes all their motorcycles for them. They fix tickets for him. Mm. And he runs a scam where the motorcycle cops give somebody a ticket, but they also give them this guy's name and address they go back there. He it, So it's this whole scheme of corruption where he makes money, the cops make money, people get their tickets fixed. And so um, the motorcycle cops were the first ones to say, oh, it couldn't be Mr. Alfredo Cocci. He's, he's a good guy. He is so innocent. Wow. He's so innocent. I love that, yeah. Don. He's so innocent. <laughs> so, yeah. So the motorcycle cops are all saying, oh, it couldn't be him. And so they're the ones who had done the investigation of his premises. Oh. Um, mm. Them and their buddies, you know, oh, mm-hmm. come with me. I'll walk you through. I'll show you everything. There's nothing to see. So that's what happened when they went through the, the premises. Damn, so that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So what one of the very first things that both the police chief and the mayor of New York City say is, you know, this kind of disappearance of young women just doesn't happen here in New York City. I'm pretty sure that's been happening in New York City since yeah. New York City was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's part of what of why um, Ruth's father and her family bring in Grace Quackenboss mm-hmm. because they've heard of her from doing these other things. With the they think she's part of that that she was kidnapped for this human sex trafficking kind mm-hmm. of thing or human trafficking, slavery, whatever. They keep calling it white slavery, and I don't know what I think about that term. So we'll, we'll call it human trafficking. Yes. Anyway, um, so they, the, the family brings in Grace. So Grace starts looking into all this, and of course, one of the first things, things she finds out is that there are hundreds of girls who go missing every year in New York City, mm-hmm. but the police almost always, in, in at least two-thirds of the cases, say, oh yeah, this is solved. She ran off with... Her boyfriend. Whoever. Yeah. Secret boyfriend. A married man. Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Right. Wow. She's on, she ran off on purpose, doesn't want to be found, doesn't want to be in touch with her family, whatever. So that's part of what Grace does. And then she starts tracking back all these other things. She brings in her detective guy. They start looking into everything. And eventually what they find out is, about halfway through the book is where, you, where we learn this, they get Mrs. Kachi to let them look around in the, in the premises, but only for a few minutes, and then they have to go. So 
they um, they talk to like the borough. I, I don't know, commissioner or somebody like that. So it's not the mayor. It's not that high up. Mm-hmm. But it's somebody who's like the neighborhood watch sort of person. But but he's got a little more authority than that. And he says, you don't need the property owner's permission to dig on the sidewalk or to dig, you know, in the in the, the public part mm-hmm. of this area, even though it's right in front of her business, you can dig there. So they do, and they dig down into their coal cellar, and the, which is attached to their basement. Uh-huh. So from there, they see that this basement has this big, giant um, tool chest sitting in the middle of it. No one ever moved it. Mm. So they move the tool chest. There's a trap door. Under the tool chest, they open the trap door, and and there's a drop of several feet. Mm -hmm. They drop down there, and then they see evidence of digging down there. And that's when they find Ruth's body. Mm. Wow. So police have been there, saw nothing. Mm -hmm. But there was that what they found later was that if they had really been using the right kind of flashlights, they would have seen spatters of blood on the walls, in the corners. You know, it's not right there, right in front of them, in the middle of everything, but it's there. If Mm -hmm. they had been looking. Exactly. If they had really been looking for anything that shouldn't have been there, they would have found it. So what they find is... Her head has been bashed in, and she's been kind of folded up from the middle. So her feet, her her legs are on either side of her head. Wow. And she's just been folded into the small hole that they dug and, and covered it up. So it's just the most incredible thing. Well, Mrs. Kachi said, well, that could be anyone could have put that there. Uh, really? <laughs> And this whole time, she she says ugly things about her husband. She she admits that they argued about all kinds of things. He says from Italy, oh, she's this horrible woman, and and she doesn't even take care of her children, and she does this and she does that, and so you know they're arguing transatlantic <laughs> with each other. But but she says she stands up for him and says anybody could have put her down there. I didn't know anything about that. That's not that's not my husband. He wouldn't have done that. Well, then, once this news comes out that they found Ruth's body there, mm-hmm. then the stories start coming out. Um, and the first one is a young woman who's who she and her mother lived across the street from the motorcycle shop. They don't anymore, mm-hmm. but they used to. And... There was a day when, after, after a long period of, of Mr. Kachi would watch her walk home, the teenage daughter walked home from school every mm-hmm. day. One day, something was going on, and he, you know, lured her down into the basement, and she start, when he starts trying to grab her or whatever he's doing, she starts yelling and screaming and kicking, and, and the mother hears it because she's right there across the street. Mm-hmm. She comes to get her. She sees him. Of course, he you know lets the, the daughter go, backs away. The daughter goes running to her mother, but they don't report it to the police because they know that if they do, 
it'll be all about her and her reputation will be ruined and they won't do anything to him mm. because nothing happened. Yeah. Well, and even if it had happened, he's buddies with right. all the cops. Exactly. So exactly. But she didn't know that. But yes, you're right. Well, and it's a lo- the same happened. reason of why women don't report exactly. sexual assault now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we're going through now, uh, more stories are coming out. And um, suddenly, Grace, who has since been divorced and has now gotten married again, who is now Grace Humiston, Grace... Um, Wait, what happened to her first husband? He, I don't know. I think he got, he didn't like her associating oh. with these kind of people that she associated with. He was threatened by her success. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Well, and, and he was, he was not wealthy, wealthy, but he was well-to-do mm-hmm. and his social standing was very important to him, I think. And so the fact that she had a legal aid law firm mm-hmm. instead of a highfalutin law firm, I don't think that went over well either. Um it's kind of interesting because it sounded like she brought the money to the marriage. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what he did after he wasn't married to her anymore, but maybe he had gotten to the point where he was successful enough in his own career that you yeah. know, he was able to, to go and be okay. But anyway, yes, that's what happened. Um, so by the time she was fully into the, the legal aid law firm and, and helping get people off death row and mm-hmm. things like that, yeah, he divorced her, and so then eventually she married somebody else. So, anyway, um, so then we're part of what's going on now is they're they're still trying to come up with proof that Alfredo Cacci over in Italy committed this murder, and there is no proof actual proof that will mm-hmm. stand up in a court. You know, everybody knows he did because of what they see and the circumstantial evidence. But because of the war, because of everything else, because of Italian law, the proof, the the body of proof that has to be in existence for them to extradite mm-hmm. is humongous. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Um, in fact... There were laws on the books in Italy at this time that actually could be read to say, if you committed a crime outside this country, it doesn't count. Hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So the only way they get Kachi into prison in Italy is that he starts hanging out with young girls in Italy. Hmm. Hmm. So... They get him off the streets at least, but he's he's not going to be extradited. So there is never going to be a trial in New York that's going to convict him. Mm-hmm. But there are people who decide they need to kill Grace because she's getting in everybody's business, <laughs> and she. So it it's very interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, she's got clients, and, and she's, it's, it's just really interesting. Um, there was this one day as in early 1918, so this was February of 1917, and by the end of 1917, they had basically solved the case, even though they didn't have all the proof they needed and weren't going to get Mr. Kachi back from Italy. Um, 
<clears throat> but early in 1918, Grace's reputation is not very good because, again, it's all the men who are in the, the New York police force, in the FBI, in the Department of Justice, in this, in that, who don't want to be shown up by a woman. Mm -hmm. So they've done everything they can to, to make sure that people think she's misguided, that she's this, mm -hmm. that she's that. So um, the 17-year-old walked into her office one day took off his coat and hat and hung him up on the, on the, the post. Um, Mr. Crone, who is the, the investigator that works for Grace, greeted him, and he said, I've come to see Mrs. Humiston. He said, she's not in. Why do you want to see her? And he says, I'm going to kill her. What? So Here's my card. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very proper to announce your intentions. I, isn't it? Isn't that the most incredible thing? So Crone looked at his face. He could instantly tell that the kid was serious. Well, if I can't kill her, the boy said slowly, then might as well kill you. And he picked up a chair, and he starts trying to beat up Mr. Crone. A chair? And, yeah. He didn't even come prepared. So, like. <laughs> well, it turns out he had a, an eight-inch blade up his shirt sleeve. I don't know how you do that without hurting yourself. I guess there's a... Chris Gabbard? <laughs> I, I don't I don't know, but that's what it says. He had an eight inch blade of his shirt sleeve. He pulls out the blade and he starts waving it around. Anyway, they get they get another private detective who had been in the next office over and they get there, they they blow the police whistle out the window, which I guess is how you summon the police then. Yeah. And they had special like Yeah, so at this blows, point like, there were there were yeah. three <laughs> detectives, policemen came in, they got this boy, and turns out he was somebody that Grace had been um, having followed for something. And he said, I was talking about him behind his back. He had visited her office a few days before, and that's what he said. I was talking about him behind his back. So that's why he'd come to kill her. Wow. So just the whole, the whole idea that um, there was no protection for somebody, uh -huh. you know, that she was just, here she is. And... And so at this point, too, the, the, the newspapers aren't even on her side anymore. Here's, here's how one, one paper described her. This is, again, early in 1918. She isn't even pretty. Almost middle-aged, wears her hair parted in the middle, and she doesn't frivol. What is that? I think it means behave frivolously. She doesn't frivol. Huh. I've never heard that word used like that. But huh. yeah, well, that sounds like a good thing. I, yeah. I was like, do you want to be so frivolous? <laughs> she isn't even pretty. She wears her hair parted in the middle, and she doesn't frivol. All bad things, according to this newspaper article. <laughs> Terrible. Like, which of those things keeps her from being effective as a as an investigator, as a detective, as a lawyer? Right. Any of those things. So. Anyway, anyway, 
So, the upshot of this whole investigation with the Ruth Kruger murder was that um, there was an investigation into the New York City Police Department. Several members of the, the, the entire motorcycle cop squad resigned. Wow. Before they could be mm -hmm. thrown out. Mm -hmm. But they went ahead and investigated them. And so several of them were indicted and were mm -hmm. ended up being put in jail and paying fines and all this. They, so they were not able to be motorcycle cops anymore. But then several higher-ups also were indicted for corruption. Um, and at the very least for... Um, lack of oversight, you know, not not supervising mm -hmm. what was going on and that kind of thing. So the person who had taken the initial report from, uh, from Ruth Kruger's sister, I think it was the very first one that called, he was um, let go. And I don't think he's, he didn't spend any time in jail, but after just a short time, he was brought back on the police force with a, you know, slap on the hand kind mm -hmm. of reprimand. But, so he got to be a policeman after that. But they didn't notice anyway. So it was kind of the beginning, I think, of um, when you would start to see internal affairs departments mm -hmm. in, in police forces. So anyway, she was responsible for that. So... Yeah. So the wife was never um, blamed for anything? No, she wasn't. But um, she did end up going back to Italy because she lost the motorcycle repair shop because, mm -hmm. of course, she couldn't repair motorcycles. Yeah. And, and the people who had worked for him didn't want to work for her because she was horrible. She was mean and yelled at people. <laughs> and all the motorcycle cops quit. Well, yeah, all the motorcycle cops quit, so they <laughs> were coming. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. And then the under under the table stuff stopped. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. She was so, yeah. And, you know, she did have lots of people stop by because they wanted to see where all this happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nobody wanted to uh, drop some change yeah. in her bucket or something. Yeah. Was like, Fix that place up a little and yeah. make it a tourist stop. <laughs> Charge us a yeah. dollar. It's pretty interesting. So there were all kinds of people, you know, related to this. So one of the there were a couple of people that that Grace was was um, good friends with who were involved in the suffrage movement, and she always said that she wasn't that concerned about suffrage. She just wanted to do what she wanted to do, and she didn't care whether women got the right to vote, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a person who was kind of a groundbreaker as going to law school and doing all these things that she was doing that she didn't really care. As long as she got I to think, do what she wanted to do. Yeah, I think, I think she was one of those people who, as long as I'm getting to do what I want to do, I don't really care about how it affects the rest of the half of the world. You know, I don't know. It was very interesting because she was a, a very caring person, obviously, or she wouldn't have decided that this is how she needed to spend her life. Of course, by the time, I mean, when she was much older, she, of course, was very much for women's right to vote. But well, during most of this time, she was not. I'm sure her opinions changed once public opinion changed against her. 
Well, and that's now true. Suddenly, you being a that's true fancy women lawyer here mm-hmm. is not looking as pretty as you thought it was. Right? Oh, gosh, wouldn't it be great if I had equal rights? Hmm. Yeah. Alfredo Cacci's wife and his son. She only, they only had one kid, not not two. I don't know why I was thinking there were two, but um, she became a naturalized citizen. Of course, the child was a U.S. citizen mm-hmm. because he was born here, and was living in Brooklyn mid-1940s, the last anybody knew of her. Um, It's very interesting. The epilogue of this book kind of does one of those rundowns of these people, this is how Mm -hmm. they, you know, and this person, this is about his life, and blah, 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 blah. And it's lots and lots of people that were really peripheral to the main story here, including the mayor, including this person who was related this way, this person who had nothing to do with anything, this person who was part of the Mississippi penury, you know, human trafficking. And and so then there's a section, you're going along, and it's all fact, 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 fact. And then he has one that says, Ruth. Ruth Kruger skates on cold glass dusted with white snow. There is frost along the edge of her silver skates. She smiles and closes her eyes. I mean, there's more to it, but it's like, why did you feel the need to give us this piece of fiction, kind Uh of, you know, this whole um, emotional landscape sort of thing about Ruth when everybody else, you're just telling us the facts about their life. Because there was nothing to say, because she died. There were facts so it about was, her life. But it was a tribute to her. But it's weirdly placed. Yeah. It's the next to last person that he talks about, because the last one is Grace. Mm-hmm. But just before Grace, there's this half a page about Ruth Kruger, and it's this weird... Well, it's it's just... It's all about feelings and, and this, this kind of, <laughs> oh, she's skating off to the bright open space now. And, and it's like, wait, we, you were telling us facts. Maria Cacci, by 1944, Maria and her son lived in Brooklyn at 362 Elton Street. She became a naturalized U.S. citizen. Ruth. <laughs> Ruth Kruger skates on gold, cold glass. Well, what is he going to say about her? She's dead. So she doesn't have anything to say after that. Or, I mean, he doesn't have any say. But you know he's, what I'm saying? for There's a lot no... of these people, he started back at their birth. Like for Grace, he starts. Grace Winterton was born on September 17th. So does he do that? Not for everybody, but for some other people, he's given the whole hmm. life story. So it's, it's just like it doesn't fit. Hmm. Maybe I, I understand that he wanted to make a tribute to Ruth, but it doesn't go there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have put that at the end. Mm-hmm. So you give your facts, you give your facts about Grace, and then at the end be like, and Ruth, whose life was cut maybe too short. As a, maybe yeah. as a Horror whole language. separate thing, not yeah. in the epilogue. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. But hmm. not right here where it is. Anyway, it's very odd. So. Grace was known to wear black all the time. She didn't work well with others because she wasn't willing to dumb herself down and, you know, do what they expected her to do. 
and that was usually what people were expecting of mm-hmm. her so that's why she didn't work well with others but she worked very well with people who were willing to let her be as smart as she was she did at the very at the end of her life um she says this so and i thought this was so appropriate even today, which is scary, crazy, Mm -hmm. so sad. But this is what she said, and this was in 1930-something. Just because girls bob their hair, wear short skirts, dance crazy dances, and look a little more sophisticated than girls of the last two generations looked does not indicate with absolute certainty, as many of our public figures have announced in bold print, that the younger generation is on the road to ruin. Yeah, but that's the motto of every generation, I think. Because we're still saying that. Oh, yeah. Parents still say, y'all are, you know, <laughs> going to put this look, country in the toilet. Look up a toilet. list and see and all the things that millennials have killed. That's right. The what? So <laughs> look up a list of all the things millennials have killed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I know that the author the author chose to write this book just because he found Grace's story as he was investigating these disappearances of young women. And so he ends the book. It, it's really interesting. He ends the book. As I finish this book, the latest name of a young woman that crosses my screen, unsearched, unbidden, is that of Tiffany Sayer, who went missing on May 11, 2015. The mother of two toddlers, the search lasted more than a month until her body was found wrapped in a sheet in a wooded area on June 20th. Her father said, it makes me mad, it makes me hurt. All I know is we're going to catch you, whoever you are. We are coming for you. Kind of scary, but mm-hmm. yeah. I hope that someday we're we're going to find the people who do these things. Mm-hmm. And it's been going on for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. and the fact that the story he pulled out to tell was a hundred years ago and it still happens it's really sad so I thought I was going to be reading a book about a woman detective (laughs) and it would be interesting like reading Sherlock Holmes only about a woman detective Uh but it was a murder mystery yeah Hmm. about a real murder oh and it fit right in yeah. Oh, <laughs> when <laughs> we told Pat she could be on here, we're like, you don't have to read a murder book. It's okay. And we'll just she- be like, do we like murder? Donna I like murder, yeah. but Pat doesn't, so she's going to read one that's not. And, it, and then was. it was. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Okay. That's funny. It was a good book. I just, uh, so sad. Well, are you going to stay in the room while you sure. uh, listen <laughs> oh, to the other two? Let's <laughs> talk about murder. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll talk about mine. Okay. So I read Mad City by Michael Arntfield. The It's the true story of the campus murders that America forgot. So the thing that I thought was really interesting about this was that in 1967, um, Young freshman at the University of Wisconsin, Christine Rothschild, was murdered. And her best friend, Linda, took it upon herself to basically hunt the murderer down. Uh, Christine had told her that she was being stalked. Gave her the name of the person that was stalking her. 
and didn't really make that big of a deal about it. She was just like, he's been really creepy and, you know, been trying to talk to me and I've already, you know, kind of told him that I'm not interested. Um, but this is who he is. Mm-hmm. And Smart girl. Yeah. Well, four days before she was murdered, she went and told campus police mm-hmm. that this guy was just everywhere mm-hmm. and she was getting really scared. And they pretty much just told her to, to get a rape whistle. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay, so uh, when was this? 1967. Okay. And so four days after she told campus police, she was murdered. Wow. And though campus police knew the name of the person that she told them was stalking her and Lynn knew the name of the person that was stalking her, they did nothing about it. Wow. Linda spent 40 years <gasps> on this, guys. That is incredible. Uh-huh. And she was constantly updating the police about his whereabouts, wow. about um, other murders that fit his MO. Mm-hmm. Mm. So he was there at the same time, and then this person was murdered very similarly to Christine, leaving behind certain things that he left behind in Christine's murder. And the cops did nothing about that. So, yeah. Yeah, we see a theme here, don't we? Yeah. yeah. We've seen a lot of this. Yeah. This, yeah. This Police show. officers, man. Some are good. Some are really good. And they're like, I'm not going to let this killer get away with stuff. And others are just like, I don't know. I don't really want to do anything today. Hmm. So, one of the weird little facts that he gives that I've... Probably, I want to do a little more research on that to see if it's true. But he says, Today there are no fewer than 20 of the largest American cities where, if you're murdered right now while reading this book, the chances of your killer being apprehended are no better than 15%. <gasps> oh, my goodness. And I'm like, is that true? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm starting to think here, why, why? Like, do they not have the resources? Do they not have, I mean, what, I mean, the desire? Why is this an issue? I think and it's why a little, is it still an issue? Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a lot of things. I think it's a little bit of not having the proper training. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of interdepartmental nonsense. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons... And probably one of the, the main reasons that he kept getting away was you had University of Wisconsin Police Department and then Madison Police Department. And those oh, were two okay. separate things. Yeah. And they were not willing to help each other out. They were not willing to share information right. with each other. You're your own thing. We're our own thing. And that kept happening in my book, too. It, so the, the New York police... When they investigated, they, uh, mm-hmm. they investigated. Yeah. Their records were over here. When the FBI was called in, they were over there. When mm-hmm. somebody else was called in, they were over here. And, and they don't talk to each other. No. And Grace was the first person to ever read all of it. Mm-hmm. And so she was able to put a lot more things together. So, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. And this so guy, frustrating. after it happened, he skipped town, went to a different city. Well, that's a whole different state, a whole different city, and a whole different police department that also does not care. 
Mm-mm. And so contact this police department because they've got all this information on him and evidence not our jurisdiction not our problem mm-hmm. so that seems to be something that happens kind of often as well wow. just why some serial killers get away with it for so long yeah mm-hmm. like even if you're in the same state well i'm just gonna go to a different county yeah and there's wow. that so christine would often spend time in the reading room in the memorial library mm-hmm. on the university campus um, apparently there was huge windows and you can actually look in and see people sitting there reading. And so she, that's where he would see her okay. often. Um, he would call her, her room and just breathe on the phone. You know, typical creepy things that, that guys do that are weird and awful. And so on the weekend... In April, when she was murdered, mm-hmm. Linda and her were going to hang out on Saturday, go watch the swim team, swim and practice, because, you know, swim team. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and they were going to hang out. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that Linda had, like, three term papers that she had to do, uh, and so she was like, okay, I really need to work on things, and I can't go watch the swim team. <laughs> <laughs> So she leaves a note for Linda, puts it in, or uh, for Christine, and puts it in her door, basically saying, you know, hey, um, I'm going to go home for the weekend so I can work on on these papers where I can be alone mm-hmm. and not distracted mm-hmm. and work on schoolwork. I'll see you on Monday and, you know, we can hang out and, you know, I'm sorry I'm canceling on you on the last minute for, for Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes home and does her homework. She gets a call from the campus police asking her if she was uh, Christine Rothschild's friend. And at first Linda's just like, who wants to know? Yeah. <laughs> like, who are you? And right. why are you asking me about my friend? And it's like, well, you know, campus police, but he won't tell her anything. So she's like, you know, she's been having trouble with some creepy dude. So I'm not going to be giving out any information mm-hmm. about what I was supposed to be yeah. doing with my friend or if she's here or not or whatever. Like mm-hmm. she just kind of blows this guy off. But then she hears about it in the news the next day that oh. Christine was murdered. So she goes back to campus with a name. She's like, there is mm. an older medical resident that has been following her around. His name is Niles Jorgensen. And he's been stalking her. Well, okay. Thanks for the info. But again, nothing really comes of it. So Christine was murdered in a very, very brutal fashion. Um, She was at the library, and when she was walking back towards her dorm room, she cut across um, Sterling Hall. And this was... Middle of the day, outdoors, broad daylight, and... Because I'm sitting here thinking, girl, don't be doing stuff in the dark. Mm -mm. Stay on the Middle of the day. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So, he bashed her head in, broke her jaw. He uh, stabbed her 14 times. Wow. When they found her... She had 
her, the lining of her coat had been cut mm-hmm. and it had been used as a garage. <gasps> oh my gosh. And so the, the police immediately like stomped all over that place, had no control over the crowd that was gathering. Like, even if they had known how to do a proper investigation, mm-hmm. they messed up what the proper investigation. What year was this? 67. 67. And so, they move her body, take her across, I want to say it was like across the, like the street, but I mean, it's a university, so mm-hmm. across the way where mm-hmm. the university hospital was. Okay. And they start to examine her body. Well, when they untied the garrote, they realized that that had been added post-mortem. Like, she had been stabbed 14 times and her right. head had been crushed in. Mm. Like, this wasn't to kill her. And so they undid the garrote and realized that the reason that it was put wasn't to suffocate her or kill her it was to keep something in her throat oh he had shoved her gloves down (gasps) her throat oh my gosh after she was dead why why would you do that okay i mean why would you do any of this (laughs) right right but any of it let's focus on that (laughs) yeah this this one's weird yeah um so the sergeant that was investigating and photographing and all that he had two uniformed police officers they were taking notes mm-hmm. um so you know he'd be like stabbed 14 times and they'd be taking notes when he undid the garage one of them just couldn't mm. and so he grabbed a trash can and threw up like wow. he just yeah <laughs> he just could not handle any of that um let's see oh and they found her black umbrella, it had been shoved into the ground, like right in front of her. It had been opened up, and all the little metal spikes had been broken. So it was like this weird broken thing in front of her. And so it was kind of like they kind of a representation of how he broke her. Oh, okay. And so, like, there's all these, like, weird, like, little ritualistic things that there's no way this could have been his first time. In the middle of the day. Right. And all this, like, all this stuff. He would have had to have known that nobody was going to be coming. Mm -hmm. He would have had to have been planning and watching to make sure that during that time he was free to do whatever he Mm -hmm. needed. Mm -hmm. Because it was going to take some time to shove those gloves Oh, yeah. All of this all was going to take. takes time. Yeah. yeah. To pose her body the way he posed her body. So she was found on her back, her head to the side. Mm-hmm. And there was a very fancy, expensive handkerchief, like, under her head. Uh, something that apparently wasn't commonly found in Madison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I really dislike about this author was that his writing is awful. <laughs> He's talking about how there's this, you know, very fancy, high-grade handkerchief found. And then he's all like, and then the hanky. And I'm like, <laughs> alrighty, dude, thanks, hanky. <laughs> That's so funny because you immediately get a different connotation with that, with that right. change in the yeah. word. Right. 
so she goes and she tells the police what she what she knows and they're like yeah okay we'll look into it and a couple of days after the murder jorgensen skips town like he skips town it doesn't seem like he skips town because he's afraid that he's going to be caught for mm-hmm. christine's murder like that he's immediately a suspect mm-hmm. um but he skips town because he was called into the medical director's office and he was basically being told that he had no place there anymore he creeped people out he was yeah. not what yeah like he was basically being fired and so what he does is he pulls out a 38 caliber roscoe and threatens to shoot the guy in the face <gasps> thinks better of it and leaves thinks better of it yeah and he's leaves. just like you know this is probably not what i need to do right now and so he goes uh, medical director does not report this to the police oh my gosh and he's just like well whatever he's gone <laughs> I mean, you're only in the first little bit of this book so oh, yeah. far, and I'm just like shaking my head. Like, what else? What else could there possibly oh, be? Oh man, <laughs> there's more. This is ridiculous. So, Linda decides that she's going to do her own little investigation now because, you know, yeah, she basically just like this is the guy that did it. Mm-hmm. She was stabbed 14 times with what they then described as a medical instrument. It's like, you mean a scalpel, which a medical resident resident has access to? So I'm starting to wonder if this guy ever gets his medical license, but go ahead. I'll wait (laughs) (laughs) to find (laughs) out what happens to this dude. Okay. So she decides to do her own little investigation, goes to where he was staying with a roommate. The roommate let her look through his stuff because he just blew town like just grabbed a bag grabbed mm-hmm. some things and left like he yeah. left all his stuff and so he's like yeah you know whatever look through it guy was weird kind of creepy pulled a gun on me once but i didn't tell anybody about it oh, goodness. so so here's a lesson learned if people do weird stuff in front of you like pull a gun or or physically assault you Tell the police. Mm-hmm. Report it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't believe you, tell somebody else. And if they don't believe you, tell somebody else. That's a lesson learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good gracious. So she starts looking through his stuff, and she finds a manuscript called The Love Pirate. Oh, nice. Sorry, I remember this. <laughs> the Love Pirate was written by... His mother. And so Linda's like, alrighty, I'm going to take this with me and take a look at it and see what what's up. And it seems like Heidi Jorgensen wrote a very veiled literary depiction of the monster she'd unwittingly created. So she basically was telling all his secrets with uh, some literary flair. So, the protagonist wow. of The Love Pirate is a Dr. Francis Corcoran, which is Dr. Niels Jorgensen. Mm-hmm. Um, he's described in the book that he wears his immaculate white coat whenever he is going hunting. Mm. And 
that he had become obsessed with a young girl named Annabelle, who he must have. And so he kidnaps her and takes her to a remote cabin in the Pacific Northwest where he intends to make her love him. And so at this point, she's like, is Annabelle an actual person that he did this to? Or is she just kind of a combination of more than one victim? Mm -hmm. So she's trying to figure all that out. And every time she takes a look at the love pirate, she finds more and more stuff especially when she starts investigating him mm-hmm. and looking into his past and she's like oh mm. that kind of matches what happened to this girl that disappeared wow and so she's following him all over the country like she's so she's become the stalker yeah if he knows <laughs> <laughs> and so she's trying to find evidence against him trying to figure out where he is, what he's doing, if there's anything she can pin on him. Because at one point, the university police did try to go talk to him. Mm-hmm. He had already fled and was in New York. Okay. And so they went there to try to talk to him. They go and they knock on his door and they're like, hey, so you left town pretty quickly after this happened. This happened like right across the street from where you work. We just want to know if you saw anything or, you know, mm-hmm. if you remember anything about that time. Like, it was not that long ago. And he's like, oh, um, I don't think I knew her. And she's like, well, you know, would you mind coming with us to the police station here in New York and take a polygraph? And that way we can just cross your name off the list. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. I'll do that. Oh, but I can't today. I'll go tomorrow. Okay, well, he'll be there at 9 o'clock. We'll be waiting for you. All righty. Guess who did not show up for his 9 o'clock appointment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine. They basically just went and told them, we'd like to talk to you because we think you killed someone. Please don't leave town. Yeah. And he was like, okay, it's time to leave town. <laughs> they did not watch his place or anything like that. They just really believed him when he said that he was going to show up for a polygraph test. So now he's in the wind, and that was pretty much the only time that they tried to talk to him. Because after he blew town for the second time, they're just like, oh, well. Obviously, he didn't do it. Obviously, he's a good dude. (laughs) We don't need to talk to him again. So he, this author goes back and forth between what's going on over here with Jorgensen and Linda and a whole bunch of other murders that happen in Madison that have nothing to do with Jorgensen, that have nothing to do with Linda, that have nothing to do with Christine. Mm. At some point, he tries to connect it all by saying that the police have a fake serial killer that they attribute a lot of this stuff to, the Capital City Killer, mm-hmm. where they really want it to just be one guy that they can pin all this stuff on. Oh. Um, when really it seems like it was several different murders committed by different people. Mm-hmm. None of the MOs really match for them to be like, oh, obviously this was done by the same guy. Mm-hmm. But they just really wanted to clear some cases. Okay. And so if they found well, enough evidence for one of those murders, they could say, this guy did all this and then just close it. Okay. Whether he'd be tried for any of those murders or not mm-hmm. is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Like They could just be like, it was him. So... 
And we've tried him for this one, murder, and he's in prison, so we can just close the books on these. They had a few different people that they tried to pin stuff on, but it was always like, well, he's too young for 1967. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so, couldn't have been that, and just stuff like that. Like, it was, it was nuts. It was a lot of craziness. Um, trying to find... So... She spends, at this point, I think it's been 20 years where she's been on his tail. And she finds out, so this is 1982. She finds out that a Jane Doe was found, I think Nevada. And they couldn't identify her. They didn't know who she was. They couldn't identify her by dental records and nothing really matched her description as a missing person. So they called her Valentine Sally because she was found on Valentine's Day in 1982. And the police called her Sally because they didn't know who she was. And so there was a lot, a lot of it didn't really seem to match mm-hmm. Jorgensen's crime with Christine, except that there was a super fancy handkerchief under mm. her face. Uh. So she's like, that's kind of a weird thing. Yeah. That's not a lot of serial killers or just ordinary killers are going to do. Yeah. You know, like, so she's like, was he around at that time? And so when she starts looking over where he was, yes, he was in that area. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And so she, at this point, she is settled in Fort Worth, Texas, Mm -hmm. because she can use her degree, her ESL degree for work. But she's also really close to the airport. So oh. she can just hop a plane and go where she needs to go if she needs to go somewhere. So she decides that at this point, it's been almost 20 years, mm-hmm. that she's going to send him a Valentine's Day card. <gasps> because of Valentine Sally. And so she sends him a card that says, Greetings from Texas. Remember when you worked at UW-Madison in 1968? I'm sure you recall that Chief Hansen sent two detectives to speak with you after you fled Madison. If you ever want to chat about the good old Badger days, please call Collect at 817-294, number redacted. She left her number? Would be interesting to reminisce since we have a friend in common. Happy Valentine's Day, Linda. Mm. She put her phone number she wrote her address on the return address. She was basically saying, Coming come at me. me. Oh, my gosh. Oh my come at me, bro. Mm-hmm. <gasps> That's pretty brave. Jorgensen didn't fall for it. Mm-hmm. He did not come after her. So she ends up sending him Valentine's Day cards for 26 years. Oh, my goodness. Dang. <laughs> that is some major Trying to get him to... To interact with her. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of information here that has nothing to do with anything, but some of it's funny. <laughs> so, in March of 1982, a third grader named Paula McCormick uh, was abducted, assaulted, and murdered. And she was put into a garbage bag then put into a box, an empty television box, and then was put into a mini storage unit. 
And the only reason that the Madison PD found out about it was because the killer, uh, Mr. Lang, went to the police offering his services as a psychic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He claimed he was a psychic. He was having visions that could help lead authorities to the missing child's whereabouts. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. He brought the police to his own storage unit. (laughs) Where... It was in his name. Uh, I mean, he didn't even try to hide that. Oh, my goodness. And then it became clear to the detectives that this guy was the killer. Wow. (laughs) I think he put it here. uh, Led the detective, uh, where the lead detective would claim that it became clear Lang had a personal connection to the disappearance, that his clairvoyant routine was disingenuous at best. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, uh huh. Oh, yeah. So, yes, occasionally I'm like, okay, that had nothing to do with anything, but that was funny. (laughs) So, back to Linda. So, she's contacting... So, he moves to Marina del Rey in California. Has his little practice there. He joins something called Sierra Singles. Where oh, no. people like to hike and try yeah. to try to hook up, and he becomes like their little leader because mm. he thinks he's so smart, he's so cool. He's so cool, and everybody is. I mean, I'm sorry if you're in something called Sierra Singles, <laughs> but whatever. This was a different time. <laughs> Old fashioned dating sites, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. So he meets a. A guy there that becomes kind of like his little protege. Um, he changes his name in this book. But there's no real evidence that the guy ever did anything. Like his little protege did anything. He just seemed to be really like a weak personality. Okay. And so he basically just became this guy's gopher. So 40 years on the 40th anniversary of Christine's death. Linda has a little memorial at the campus where the police basically tell her that she needs to stop meddling, that they are investigating and they are very active in this case, which is 40 years later, later. which is not true. They -hmm. haven't done anything. Mm -hmm. And so she's just like, I am going to contact the LAPD because at this point, that's where Jorgensen's at. And basically just say, here's all the things that I know about him. So one of the things that this guy, this author, brings up is that Jorgensen's mom, Heidi, passed away. And when she passed away, Jorgensen self-published The Love Pirate. He sure did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> after, after Linda had sent him that first Valentine. So, basically, she was like, this guy just won up to me. Yeah. Because now, if she goes to the police and she's all like, read this manuscript and you'll see that there's all this stuff that she was trying to tell you. Uh-huh. Well, he just self-published it for the world. 
Yeah. You know, it's like how true is any of this stuff if he himself put it out there mm-hmm. for the world to see? And so she's like, fine. <laughs> you know, she's just like, but at least she knows like she got through to him somehow. Yes. That he's like, oh, okay. You think that you got me? Well, you don't. Mm. So she calls a family friend of theirs, of the Jorgensen's, and she pretends to be a producer for some TV show, like a who's who of America type show. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a new show that they're trying to put out, but, you know, they're trying to find some people to do the show about. And, you know, they heard about dr jorgensen and they think he'd be a great candidate for it and so this this little old lady is falling for it and so she starts talking about you know how he was in the military and he was in the battle of the bulge and he was just (laughs) yeah and oh my gosh he's such so great and so she's getting all this information that's how she finds out about the book being Uh self-published and she's just like really wow, is, is there any way that I could get a copy? I was like, we can't, like, I don't really want you to tell him that we're like we're doing this show on him because we want him to be surprised. Mm-hmm. So when he's on the show, he can be, like, legitimately surprised. Right. And so she's like, oh, yeah, well, I'll get a copy and I'll just mail it to you. And so she's like, okay, and gives her the address, too. I mean, the serial killer already has her address. Yeah. So she's like, to send it here. Um I guess she doesn't question why it's going to some residential address, but in Texas. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so she does. She sends it. And in the liner notes there, um, all of it is pretty much the, the same that she had seen, except that he had changed up a little bit of the wording for her as a sign to her. So she knew hmm. that he was he was doing this basically to undermine her. So in the liner notes, it said, Dr. Francis Corcoran gets what he wants. Then he meets Annabelle in San Francisco. He must have her. She resists. He lures her into his car. He assures her that after a time, he will turn her to return her to society unharmed. Does he sacrifice all and become persecuted as a kidnapper? Read the li- read the love pirate and see. Well, that part about being persecuted wasn't in any of the previous material. So she's just like, that's him letting her know that he pretty much did this just to, just to one up her. Mm-hmm. So, yes, she spends... 40 years keeping tabs on this guy. She thinks that maybe she stopped him from committing some crimes just as a constant one year reminder of, hey, somebody's watching you. Somebody's watching you. Mm -hmm. Here's a Valentine's Day card letting you know that I'm still watching you. Yeah. Um, So one of the other weird random facts that was put in here that had nothing to do with anything Mm -hmm. was that Linda contacted the LAPD to basically let them know who who was living there in their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. He goes into a little thing here about previous police chiefs of the LAPD for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Um, for whatever reason. I, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, I don't know why you're telling me any of this. 
like I can understand you telling me a little bit about Chief Breton, who is the police chief that she contacted. Mm-hmm. But why am I hearing about William H. Parker, who was like one of the first police chiefs in Los Angeles? Like, why do I care about that? Here's why I care. <laughs> <laughs> so Parker was a hard drinking racist. But he also modernized the department and was very zealous about crime fighting. He's the one that started the gangster squad there in the LAPD. Mm-hmm. But he was drunk 24-7. <laughs> he was also smart enough to know that he had no business driving or writing his own speeches. <laughs> He was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. So he had himself a young public information officer to write his speeches named Gene Roddenberry. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) So I'm like, why am I? What? Why are you telling me that? I'm like, oh, Gene Roddenberry. Okay. There is no other way for you to sneak this information in there. <laughs> so, kudos to you, buddy. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So it was reportedly uh, speculated that Mr. Spock was uh, modeled after Parker and his no-nonsense disposition. Mm. The man he hired as his chauffeur, the police officer that would drive him around because he was too drunk to drive himself later became police chief himself so he Hmm. worked his way up (laughs) but and that guy gates who was his driver that became police chief he started the original SWAT team the the original what SWAT oh okay Hmm. cool so it's like okay but also i was like all right (laughs) that thing thanks for that (laughs) so she emailed them she did get an email back a couple of days after from a Captain Jackson, who was writing to her on behalf of Chief Bratton. And <laughs> he can't type because he's drunk. <laughs> That's a different guy. <laughs> and so they were interested in her information and what she had and so on. So she's thinking, finally, finally, mm-hmm. someone's interested in what's going on. After Jorgensen's mom died... He tried to rent out her room to mm-hmm. make a little extra money and so on. And his little, his friend from Sierra Singles found someone to rent the room. Have no idea who the guy's name is because they don't know. It's just some unnamed Argentinian. Hmm. At some point, the guy disappears and they think that he was murdered. <laughs> really? This guy thinks he's murdered. I'm like, you don't know his name. You don't know if he decided to leave. Maybe he was murdered. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, think, we think he was murdered. Uh, right. Yeah, we do. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like <laughs> but I was like, that's kind of a, it's like a broad there. Yes, like, that's true. You don't know his name, so you can't check to see if he ever moved showed up else somewhere or, else. Or, yeah, because when he rented the room, it was on a temporary basis. Like it wasn't yeah. like I'm going to live here forever. <laughs> well, and all of the other um, victims 
that we're aware of were female, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it it may not have been a yeah. murder, but yeah. yeah. But okay. he mentions it several times after mm-hmm. he mentions him the first time. The unnamed oh. Argentinian that's missing. Yeah. And I'm like, all right. Um, you were a cop. <laughs> so, <laughs> but whatever. You're just trying to make your book sound very interesting, I'm sure. So this this author was a cop? Oh, yeah. This author was, he had 15 years of experience as a police officer. He is currently... A professor at the Western University in Canada. And he was a television host for the Oprah Winfrey Network series, To Catch a Killer. Hmm. So Linda's still still trying to get this guy for something, mm-hmm. you know? But I'm also like, 40 years, girl. Yeah. 40 years. <laughs> After several Valentine's Day cards, Jorgensen, who's already a very old man, sends her a book that was like the case for Easter. And he's like annotated a whole bunch of stuff in there. And she's reading his crazy writing. And she's just like, either I'm really getting to him or he's gone crazy. <laughs> I'm going to send him another Valentine's Day card. <laughs> if I can't get him, I'm going to send him crazy. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing it. Oh. So this is where he starts talking about his, the, the author starts talking about the class that he teaches mm-hmm. at the Western University. So basically he teaches a class <laughs> where they look at unsolved cold cases that mm-hmm. he feels are solvable. Okay. And so the students basically um, look over these cases and try to gather information. Um, And so one of his classes is working on this cold case, which he has, I think at this point, this is like his third year that he's done it. Mm -hmm. And this case has always been in the group of cases that they can research. And so they each get a little bit of information here and there, like Mm -hmm. each class did. Um. And one of his students, Jillian Clare, and her group decide that they are going to call him. Okay. Um, at this point, they've, they've talked with Linda. They found out about her, and they've been in communication with her, and she's given them all the information that she's got and given them tips about what she thinks would really draw him out. So this is the third group or the third year year students. Okay. And so um, how did they find her? Through Facebook. (laughs) Her name came up in a 2008 article Uh that she had talked to the reporters about Christine and her murder still going on. 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Going unsolved. And so um, they couldn't find her until she made a, a Facebook profile. And mm-hmm. then they contacted her through Facebook. Okay. And she was all for it. Sure. You know, I mean, at this point, she's just like, someone's still trying. Mm-hmm. And so, Claire calls him. Just a cold call. He talks about how if he had known that they were going to do that, he would have pulled a plug on this. Because that's not their, that was not ever anything that they were supposed to do. Oh. They were just supposed to gather information 
mm-hmm. they're not cops they're students yeah. yeah and calling a serial killer like come on right but they don't so, get extra credit for that no <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> he was just like this is not like they didn't tell him mm-hmm. because they knew that he would be right. like well taking that case away from you yeah. right mm-hmm. and so jillian calls him she's young would be about christine's age maybe a little older so they're hoping that her calling him is gonna spark a little a reaction from him and he puts a little transcript here of some of the things that they talked about and so let's see did she record the conversation is that what okay yeah she recorded the conversation so she tells him that she knows that he at one point was a suspect in one of the murders, and he starts talking about how the surgery chief was jealous of him, and he showed him up, and so whenever he was asked, he dropped his name as a way to be vindictive. Okay. Because everybody was jealous of him. Mm-hmm. And... Jillian, oh my. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, how come you've never cleared your name then? And he was like, I didn't have to clear my name. You know, there was no, there was no reason to. And so she's like, okay, right, right. And so she asked him if he was familiar with Christine, if he had any relationship with her. And he was like, I never met her. I might have seen her. She might have made a spectacle of herself at the restaurant across the street from the university. We heard about her. And it's just like, okay. He starts talking about how all the girls wanted to date him, um, but he would never date a teenage girl. He always found older women to be more valuable. (laughs) So there's that. He goes on a little bit more talking about how great he is. A little bit more about how great he is. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And then, let's see. So then she says, now Christine Rothschild was stabbed 14 times. Do you have any idea what would compel a person to stab a person 14 times? Well, maybe she refused some boy or something and he took it out on her. Sounds like that's an act of rage. You would really have had to have some personal relations to make one or two stabs, but 14? That's an act of rage, wouldn't you say? Laughs. She tries to respond to his question, but he interrupts her. Because of course he does. You don't have to have a PhD in psychology to figure that one. She also had her gloves shoved down her throat. Her what? Her gloves shoved down her throat. I was wondering if you had any opinions about that. Her gloves? That's right. Hand gloves? Yes. That's bizarre. What is that supposed to mean? That she talks too much or tells people the wrong thing or exposed him? You would run wild with your imagination on that one. That's pretty wild. Did you find out that she went to campus police and... Yeah. Said who he was. And let's see. And so then she's just like, okay, well, I really appreciate your time. And I have one last question for you. 
did you murder Christine Rothschild? I never even knew her. I have no reason to kill her or any other teenager. I had no interest. One good thrust would do the job if you had the knowledge of anatomy to do it anyways, you know. It doesn't take that much knowledge. Any good swordsman knows where to find a place. She was stabbed with a medical tool, and that just makes me curious if maybe you have some suspicions as to who might have who it might have been. Mm-hmm. Medical tool? You mean like a Humvee knife or something? Like a scalpel? An amputation knife? My own attitude was to try and avoid using an amputation knife. This I learned from being stabbed during combat during the European Central European Campaign. Battle of the Bulge, you know, they call it. <laughs> so, he said a lot of very telling things there. Mm-hmm. And so, they sent it to the police. And the police thought that it was pretty interesting, too, but did nothing about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Yep. So... <sighs> At this point, she is just like, well, all right then. She sends him another Valentine's Day card. This is her 26th Valentine's Day card. But before she sent the card, he called her. He finally called her. Wow. Didn't say anything at first, just sat there and breathed. But she knew it was him. Uh huh. And so she just sat there and waited. She said, hello. And then she waited. Mm-hmm. And then he finally said something to her. Finally, he says, the Rothschild girl. No one was smart enough to check the autoclaves. That day, no one looked at the autoclaves. Tell Josephson, tell him he wasn't smart enough. Click. They had no real way to verify if it was Jorgensen or not, but they uh-huh. looked up the phone records and it came from his address in Marina Del Rey. Uh-huh. And then, so she sent him his yearly Valentine's Day card, because she's like, I got him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, sends him the card in February 16th of 2013. The man dropped dead from a heart attack. Mm. And I was pissed. (laughs) I was like, 40 years? 40 years. So that's why you didn't like the end. I was like... What the what? Yeah. <laughs> so you find, like, he finally admits it to a degree. Yeah. He finally admits it. He just went back to the hospital, put his scalpel in the autoclaves for them to be sanitized. Yeah. And that was that. Oh, my goodness. And they never found him, caught him, or even really cared to look. Josephson was the pol- the police officer that was in charge of the investigation in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So when he was like, he wasn't smart enough, tell Joseph's son he wasn't smart enough, that's who he was referring to. Wow. And it's just like, and then he dies of natural causes. Mm. Not in prison. (laughs) He could have had his heart attack in prison. Right. (laughs) So I wonder, did he know he wasn't doing well? I think so. I think that was his last, his last thing. Like confession so that he could die peacefully yeah mm. or whatever yeah. or just to show up that hey Pro- you didn't catch me to, yeah it was yeah. probably more of a none of you were face. smart enough yeah. to catch me yeah and so all this time you've been you've been chasing after me uh-huh you couldn't and i'm still stick. here uh-huh. so how did this book come about then how did all these pieces come about so that this guy would know to write this story about well this? 
like I said, for his class, mm-hmm. he, he picked a lot of uh, cold cases that he thought were solvable. Basically, there was evidence there that could have led to solving the case and an arrest. The police just didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his students found Linda. And then once they did that cold call, they had to go to him and tell him what they did and what they found out. Okay. So then he contacted Linda and then they talked some more and then that's how the book came about. Because she let him know that she'd received that phone call Mm -hmm. and and then Mm -hmm. they, yeah. Yep. And so she at the end felt like, you know, she got him. That she feels like she stopped him from committing other crimes that, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a little disappointing that he died of a heart attack and no justice ever really came of it. Mm-hmm. Right. But she doesn't feel like her life was wasted. Yeah. Julian Claire went on to, she completed the course, but she decided to go and be a music and talk show producer for an independent radio. So she didn't mm. pursue any of that. Um, that was pretty much it. He, Died of natural causes. I have no idea if Linda ever got married or what. Because the epilogue here talks about how Linda uh, lives an overdue quiet life in suburban Fort Worth. Now well into her 60s. She is at the moment learning Japanese. Following several years of part-time teaching English as a second language. With Jorgensen's death, she now finds that she has more available time to devote to other projects that being Linda, she will inevitably see through to fruition. Mm -hmm. Even today, Linda herself can't explain what drove her, Mm. what the prime mover was, if any, that propelled her on her quixotic and as some have said, foolhardly thankless and often dangerous journey, pursuing a serial killer across middle America and back again. Mm. That point is that she can't explain it. And that's why it matters. More importantly, she doesn't need to explain it. And I'm just like, mm, I don't know. She she talks about how she met Linda, or she met Christine by chance, and they became really close, and she considered her like a surrogate sister. Mm-hmm. And so I think a little, uh, a little guilt was there, too. Mm. Like, if I hadn't canceled on her mm-hmm. and we had just gone to see the swim team. Mm. Yeah that maybe she would have been fine. Yeah. But, I mean, this guy was already focused on her. Mm -hmm. She couldn't be around her 24-7. Right. Right. And so. Well, yeah. There was a lot of story here about Linda and her pursuit that I thought was very interesting and very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then there was a lot of stuff that I didn't need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he didn't have enough... Uh, material yeah. yeah on Linda herself mm-hmm. to make a book and so he had some filler in there with other killers and so forth yeah well it's fascinating yeah yeah her part I was like that's why I was I was like I don't need to know this I'm skipping through this yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. except for the psychic and Gene Roddenberry <laughs> I was just like <laughs> I was like man oh there was some hypnotism in here too. Hypnotism. Yeah. So in 2005, I believe there was another girl attacked 
on the campus and um the there was a, a guy that heard her scream and so he looked out the window and he saw her on the ground and saw a shadowy figure run away mm-hmm. and so you know he called campus police and went out there and tried to help her um he never saw the guy he just saw a shadowy figure so the <laughs> the campus police for some reason decided that they were going to hypnotize him so he could recall what he saw and he was just like i i didn't see see anything (laughs) (laughs) let's not actually like investigate or check the scene or see if anybody saw her get off the bus and what like it was just like no no we're gonna focus on this guy and we're gonna hypnotize him that guy had he was he was like i'm not doing this nonsense and he left town (laughs) 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 he was just like nope wow so yeah i mean there was a couple of things here and then i'm like Okay, that's funny. Uh-huh. This had nothing to do with anything. But yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> I'm a psychic, y'all. I'm gonna tell you where this body is. It's like it's probably not a good idea, dude. Don't do that. <laughs> right. Mm. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> wow. So yeah. He wrote so ugh. I think I and I mentioned this a couple of times, I think, to Don, but and the first, at least in the first part of the book, he mm-hmm. used to the max. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> he used glom. And I'm like, okay, dude. Sure, I guess. I know I flagged one thing in here that I was like, tragicomic. Uh. He, uh, did talk about things being tragicomic and i'm like okay i don't think this i've ever heard that one yeah that's not tragicomic not tragicomic that's just tragic let's see ah so he talks about albert fish um who was the so-called brooklyn vampire and for whatever reason he says, Fish was a geriatric serial murderer and cannibal who rode the lightning at Sing Sing in the winter of 36 at age 65. And I'm rode like, Rode the lightning. Rode the lightning. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. my goodness. All, All right. right. That was very fascinating. Okay, so I read To the Last Breath by Carlton Stowers. Mm. And it's about a murder of a little girl who is about two, mm. uh, two to three years old. And um, they said that her dad had done it. And mm. so the book was just all about the, um, you know, how they got together and all that. So they actually met in Galveston. And they, um, the dad's name was... Um, Michael Shane Good. Well, I say good. It's G O O D E. That's how I'd pronounce it. But they, I was watching a program and they pronounced it differently. Mm. Good, I think, mm-hmm. is what they said. Good, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think that's correct. And then the the mom's name was Annette, and they'd both been married before. Um, Annette was a kind of soft spoken. Um, 
lady, her previous marriage, she had been abused. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was very abusive and stuff. And, you know, she'd gotten out of that marriage. And then um, she meets this guy. And he's the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, He does, like mean things i mean like at first he's all you know super nice and sweet Mm -hmm. and sends her flowers and you know just really woos her and um they end up getting married and she has a a child from a previous marriage and so does he and um i think it was their first christmas together he um starts talking about how you know you're going to get a ring for christmas you know kind of alluding to that mm-hmm. and um she opens her christmas present and he had taken a pair of her old shoes and wrapped them up and given them to her and keeper yeah, exactly <laughs> i mean just ridiculous things and it wasn't like okay yeah there's a ring inside the shoe or something, (laughs) you know? No, there wasn't any of that. Mm -hmm. And he just thought those kinds of things were hysterical. Uh, And so there was a lot of, like, emotional abuse Mm -hmm. in this relationship. Um, So, let's see. Okay, so he was super great with her to begin with. But when he met uh, Annette's mom, he wouldn't even look at her. He would just look at the ground in front of her or in front of him, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's just very telling to me. If somebody will not look up and look at you in the eye Mm -hmm. um, or even in the face, I mean, just continue looking down. That's just creepy, weird stuff. Um, So the mother, her name is Sharon Couch, and she actually was um, is very key to um, this story here all right so it comes out at a certain point that i'm just kind of giving you some background information more about him is one of the things that he would do when he was a child is he would capture stray cats and then he would dig a hole and he would put them in the hole and bury them with their head out Mm. and then he would take a lawnmower (gasps) and decapitate them Mm. oh my so th- these were stories that he told to his um, his ex-wife. Um, <laughs> and she was like, and I'm out. <laughs> well, she finally did, but she was like, I don't know whether to believe that or not. I mean, I don't know. He he is proven to be quite the liar. I think that I would leave even if he was lying about yeah. something. Okay, yeah. like right? I'd be like, uh-uh. This is, this is something that you're willing to lie about. Exactly. Either you did it and that's horrible, or you're making this all up, which is horrible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, uh, yeah, I can't even. Okay. Okay, so another thing that happened was him and his ex-wife had gotten into a shouting match, and um, he had just hauled off and punched her in the side of the head. So uh, this was outside of a store. Um, the store manager finally got involved because they were yelling at each other. She went to the ER and had a perforated eardrum. So she finally filed assault charges and she moved out, and she had a three-year-old son, or child at that time, I think it was a daughter, and um, hired a lawyer. So he was sentenced to a year of deferred adjudication, probation, for the assault. He was uh, mandated to pay $480 in um, child support each month, and the other lady had custody of their child. Uh 
this was like the starting point of him having financial trouble because Mm -hmm. his, at this point, his expenses exceeded his income because Mm -hmm. of having to pay so much out for child support. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of a big thing for him. Um, So one of my questions that I wrote down here is like, why are people who do this allowed to go and do it again with someone else? Mm -hmm. So yes, he's, he's punished. Basically Mm -hmm. he's got to, you know, they're getting divorced and all that, but he's allowed to go free. So now he can find somebody Mm -hmm. else to marry or to do whatever. Preferred your, your, whatever you said. Deferred. Yes. Deferred. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Basically once he, once he completes probation, that's off his record. Mm. Okay. And which so, is yeah, yeah which if, is, he pay, if he pays his fine like he was supposed to pay his fine and do his probation like he's supposed to do his probation mm-hmm. no harm no foul buddy yeah and i just think i mean that's just a really sad thing about our system anyway so he he gets um with annette and they eventually get married and um you know they um they're moving into a new location, into a new house, and or an apartment, and she's pregnant. But she's moving. I mean, she's picking up, like, couches, and, I mean, she's helping move a lot of furniture. And the mother's like, why are you doing this? And she, uh, you know, is adamant that, that she needs to do this. Um, and the husband is not saying anything about it. So anyway, like about a week or so later, she calls her mom crying and says, I lost the baby. Well, it comes out later that she'd actually had an abortion because he didn't want it. And she was kind of a pushover. And so she was like, you know, she ended up agreeing to it that, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't the right time or whatever. And, um, but that was not, that did not come out until, you know, much later. So the mother was thinking that mm-hmm. she had lost the, the baby because of the work. And she, the so furniture. she's starting to get bad feelings about the guy mm-hmm. now, too. Mm-hmm. Not the fact that, you know, he won't look at her. So, um, so in, in, during this time, they're living down in the Houston area. Um, actually, one of the, the towns that they talked about was uh, Alvin. And that's the home of baseball player yes. Nolan, Nolan Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, it's a small small town down there. Uh, one of the things too, leading uh, up to um, issues with the finances, is they had bought a car, a Trans Am. And this was in the early nineties, and. Which is kind of weird that they would buy a car. He bought this for her. Well, they they go out to this nightclub. He kind of surprises her, which he never does because mm-hmm. they're having financial trouble, and right. says, let's go to dinner and dancing. So the mother watches the kids, and they go to dinner fine. They go out dancing. They come out, and the car's gone. It's been stolen. Was it stolen, or was this an insurance scam? Uh-huh. Oh, Yes. Mm. So it comes out later that Annette's brother, who was having some hard times around this time, um, Shane, they worked it out that he was going to come and steal the car. And, um, you know, then they got the insurance claim Mm -hmm. and a little bit more from that. And so, yeah, they were all good. And it was over $12,000. 
that they got. Mm-hmm. So, you know, financial troubles alleviated for a little while. And and they sold the car. So he gets the the insurance payment. But then the kid knows people mm-hmm. who want you that car. You gotta do something with that yeah. car. <laughs> so he sells it to them and gets money from that. And then they split the money. So it was, yeah, this big thing. Hmm. So this is what kind of guy he is. Okay. There's a certain point where he says... I want a divorce from, um, Shane says he wants a divorce from his wife. And she's like, oh, please don't go. I'm like, are you kidding? Get him out of here. <laughs> and then she's like, that way, at least her daughter can have a good Christmas. I'm like, really? I don't know. It was weird stuff. Anyway, they end up getting divorced or at least separated. And then he comes back into the picture and they're living together for a while while she gets pregnant again. And she's not going to do the whole uh, abortion thing. She, mm-hmm. You know, she's not going to do it this time. And so she has has the baby. And the baby's name is Renee. And he tells her at first, I'm here for you. If you need anything, I'll help you with medical bills or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So she finally, she falls. He's so rich. Yeah. yeah. And he's such a stand-up guy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so she's like, no, I'm fine. Because she's kind of broken away from him at this point. She kind of is a little bit more confident in herself. And um, so she's like, no, I'm fine. Well, then she falls and gets hurt. And she can't work. And there's, you know, medical bills start to pile up. And so she does contact him and says, can you help me? And he goes off on her no he's not gonna do it no this child is not mine no 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 you need to have an abortion and she's like no (laughs) um so anyway he goes if you have this child it's not i'm not having anything to do with it and so she does have the child and he gets a new girlfriend and the conversations he has with the girlfriend are annette's baby it's never my child. It's her child. So they go and um, they go to court and um, to do the divorce and all that. And he demands a paternity test uh, because he just, you know, is trying to get out of it any way that he can. Mm-hmm. But it's, now, it's his kid. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is his kid. And um, he's like, tells the girlfriend that he's with now, well, if because he's now got to pay child support if i've got to pay child support i'm getting visitation um just to get back at the mom mm-hmm. really and none of these are red flags to that girlfriend mm. oh no i'm really? like i'm yeah. like red flags all over the place uh-huh. <laughs> well the interesting thing is is um i don't know exactly i think he does something stupid like the whole christmas gift gag to her mm. and she's, she's like it? no <laughs> she's like you're out of here so they break it off um okay so they break it off and um he's trying to call annette back trying to get back with her and Mm. she's like whatever dude not (laughs) happening and um (laughs) you know you talk about um in, you know, little funny things in the books. Yeah. So I, I was reading this part and I thought, oh my gosh, it sounds just like a commercial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so during this one time, it says that the girlfriend um, and him lived together. 
he he was always complaining about financial hardships. She'd done what she could, even putting him in touch with her insurance carrier, who saved him five hundred dollars on car insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Geico? That's right. just so uh. funny. I'm like, that is just word for word a commercial. Um, he starts to get the visitation with the kids. And at a certain point, um, the little girl doesn't want to go. Mm-hmm. And the older girl doesn't mind going because he usually when he gets them, he's got his other child from the previous marriage, and then he'll get the two girls that are Annette's. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of them is his. Yeah. And um, but the little girl doesn't ever seem to want to go, and she'll cry, and you know that just breaks my heart to to think about that. Um, so. There's one night, it's um, New Year's Eve, they uh, go over to his house because he's got the girls, the other girl, and um, the next morning, Annette's older daughter calls and says that he's not there, that they've been basically there by themselves. They, th- His parents were living there also, but they were doing other things, and anyway... Annette's like really mad because Mm -hmm. her children Mm -hmm. he'd left to go out and he's like oh a friend called and needed some help blah 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 well later it came out I believe in the trial that um, his other daughter said that he'd gone out to go dancing that he looked really nice when he was dressed up and and so she didn't mean to put you know do anything to him but yeah Mm -hmm. um Okay, so, all right. Initially, he doesn't want anything to do with Renee and all that, but it comes out that he put an insurance policy out on her for $50,000. And he also did uh, put an insurance policy out on his other daughter uh, as well at the same time. And this came about because the... After Annette, his girlfriend, mm-hmm. that became the ex-girlfriend, um, the insurance agent had called and left a message about the his insurance policy. And when she asked him about it, he poo-pooed it and said, oh, it's whatever. And so anyway, um, she got in contact with, um, well, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself, I guess. This happened after the murder. So, um, so that was the... the New Year's Eve thing. So January 22nd, they stay the night again at the dad's house. The daughter doesn't want to go. She cries. Uh, the mom doesn't sleep well. She mm-hmm. just is ang- has anxiety the whole night, all this stuff. She gets a call the next morning that um, Renee is not doing well, that the paramedics are there, and they live 45 minutes away. So she immediately, her and her new actual husband get in the car and drive over. So she got married secretly and Mm. didn't tell anybody because she thought that it would cause issues with that guy and Mm -hmm. all this stuff. So she just didn't even say anything. Um, So they drive over to the house and the police treat her like an outsider Mm -hmm. as she's coming in, even though this is her child. He, the um, dad is sitting on the chair, just rocking the girl back and forth. Um, but with no emotion. So mm. the police are like, 
thinking he's like faking it, mm-hmm. kind of, you know. And he won't give the child to his mother. Huh. Anyway, so Annette thinks that something happened. And I guess on children that are young, they have to have a, an autopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it took quite some time to get the autopsy uh, information back. But the medical examiner said that there was, um, it was indetermined, undetermined how she died. Uh, however, there were some things in the book that he had, they said that he had seen, but he ignored or he didn't think that it was relevant yeah so instead of pulling those things out he just said that it was undetermined um so the grandmother really takes the plight of finding out that he he killed the granddaughter Mm -hmm. and um so throughout this the insurance you know call thing comes up the ex-girlfriend contacts the mom and says you know i think he did it you know i don't know how i you know Mm -hmm. but she's like i feel and so she had no idea that they were already thinking that already um so she was actually very instrumental in helping them get more information she called the insurance company and said um this is my boyfriend or my fiance. We're getting, you know, we're going to be getting married and I want to get the same insurance policy on my kids as you have on, or he has on his kids. So they gave him the information mm-hmm. and that's where it came out that he had $50,000 life insurance policy on, on the girls. Um, throughout this, the police are not real, really doing anything. Yeah, they're really active. Yes. So here's the, tie-in for all of our books. Yeah, there it is. Three, yep. three and oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh and three. Oh three. Yeah. What do we, what do you call that? A hat trick? <laughs> is that a hockey, a hockey term or whatever? Three and Sorry. That's all right. No, you're fine. We're consistent. <laughs> so, um, the investigator, the initial, uh, investigator in it, um, Okay, how do I proceed with this? There's, there's just so much information. It's like, which angle do you take first? Sharon Couch, the grandmother, starts gathering information and tries to turn it over to the police. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. it's circumstantial evidence. What can I do with that? Or, you know, is it really that big a deal? You know, that kind of stuff. And so they finally, um, this initial investigator calls in um, Shane Go- Goods dad and they're having this conversation and um at the end of the conversation the dad the the investigator says i think he might have had something to do with it and the dad says i do too oh. his own dad his own dad did. wow however he later denies it adamantly uh. that he never said that hmm. okay so Things happen and don't happen. Mm. The investigator um, is not really um, focused on this. He's more of like a drug kind of person or something. And so he was just on call that night. And so that's why he was working it. So he gets reassigned back to what he normally does. And um, 
this other investigator comes in and she actually asked for the case. And so then she contacts Sharon Couch and Annette and they start to, you know, gather information and she contacts the, um, assistant district attorney and says, we need to exhume the body. Um, Sharon Couch had been in, in contact with a friend's brother, I believe it is, from Florida, who was um, very prominent in uh, researching exhumed bodies and children's deaths and that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so he was giving her information over the phone. Finally, I think they were able to send him like the slides and mm. things from the autopsy for him to look at he's like really without me being able to look at this there's nothing that i can really say mm -hmm. in, definitely so they finally um get the assistant da to um exhume the body get the order to exhume the body so that they can do a second autopsy. Mm -hmm. So this is within eight months that they were actually able to do that. So that's really pretty quick to yeah. be quite honest. But he said like time is of the essence because the evidence is going to go away. Yeah. The body's decomposing. Right. So they got it approved. He comes in by the end of it. He looks at the detective and says, you have a homicide on your hands now. This is now murder investigation so they start to pursue that and everything is really kind of circumstantial evidence but um they said that the child died of um, compressive asphyxiation so the night of the um the murder he said that all the kids were kind of getting ready for bed that the little girl wouldn't settle down and so he laid down with her well what he did is he uh squeezed her to death mm -hmm. And so they they actually showed that in the in the trial how that would happen. So he, they were holding a doll, and he wrapped his arms around her, and and it it took probably five to seven minutes at least for her to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it wasn't a, a quick thing. Um, but because the ME had not conducted a you know looked behind certain organs and doing this and that he didn't see a lot of the, the other things um okay so during the um so during the trial um you know they they called all the witnesses i told you about the one daughter saying things mm -hmm. against the dad and mm -hmm. you know she didn't mm -hmm. really know that she was doing that mm -hmm. um i ended up watching afterwards this uh in pursuit of justice about this case. Mm -hmm. And it also said that um, she admitted on the stand that she thought he had done it, which I thought was wow, fascinating. Yeah. Um, so they find him guilty and, you know, everybody's somewhat happy, I guess. They um, sentence him to life in prison and I looked online and it said, <laughs> I was showing Denise and Chris that it said 5,000 years, right? Mm. That he could, mm -hmm. I don't know what. Eligible for parole. 5,000 years. In 5,000 years, years, yes. Wow. So not life, but life. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow, I've never seen that. You know, mm. 
life is one thing, but when you see 5,000 years, that gives it kind of a different perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, from what I understand, he is still in jail. Because um, it has not been 5,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, they were talking initially about um, an acqu- not an acquittal. Um, and an not appeal? appeal, yes. Mm-hmm. I knew it started with an A. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, could have appealed that. Yeah. So they're in the process of the appeal, and uh, the prosecute, no, the defense lawyer really felt like there was not enough evidence to keep mm-hmm. him in jail and all this For 5, stuff. 5,000 years? But yeah. That's his job. Yeah. Right. So he's, we're in this process. Four years after he's uh, convicted, he writes a letter to Annette and confesses that there he goes, did it. There goes your appeal, buddy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they were like, so, like, why? why? I mean, he was just, I think he probably, like, had bipolar disorder or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so I'm watching this program, In Pursuit of Justice, and if you're interested, it's season two, episode 16, Infant Mortality. Uh, it didn't match up as much with the book. Of course, they ha- I know they had to shorten things, mm-hmm. but they left out the whole part about S- Susan Couch being so prominent in the mm. investigation. Mm-hmm. She actually became a detective, mm. uh, kind of like your book, you know, oh, wow. your author. Um, not your author, your character in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, because she had been investigating and trying to help her son initially, and then this all came up. And so, yeah, she was uh, doing a lot of stuff. And the initial uh, lead prosecutor in the case met with Sharon and Annette the first time. And so uh, Sharon brings all of her details with her in her whole folder and, you know, Mm -hmm. is going to give it to this guy and share with him what she's found out. And he's like, what are you doing? don't get involved with this. He didn't want her doing anything. Mm. He didn't want any of the information she'd already gotten. Um, Anyway, he ended up quitting before this came to trial. And yeah, so (laughs) they were very upset because um, they thought he was such a good prosecutor that they weren't going to win if he didn't try it. Hmm. And so anyway, they did win. Um, but I thought that it's very interesting that the the defense lawyer believed so much in his client that he didn't do it, that there's not enough evidence, and then he ends up confessing mm-hmm. that he did it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So did it ever go into any detail about <laughs> his, you know, why he did this? I mean, I mean, yes, yeah, that was uh, did it did it clarify that he did it because that's his thing. He just does insurance scams, and this is just one of them. Mm-hmm. And he was just that heartless that he would do yeah. do something like yeah. that. that Go buy another car, buddy. How he got his, <laughs> like yeah. that's how he made his living or whatever is by doing that kind. Of yeah, and it wasn't really how he made his living because he worked for the post office. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry. That that was interesting information. I wish I'd known that earlier. I would have made some postman jokes. So him and the other girlfriend uh, worked together at the post office, and his dad worked there also and got him the job. Um, So he had a decent job that he was bringing in money for, but he would 
you know, get behind for all Mm -hmm. these child support payments. And Mm -hmm. he didn't want to pay child support. He was very mad about that. So if he eliminates the child, then he doesn't have to pay the child support. Um, You know, there's a, you can give up your parental rights and not have to pay child support. You know what? Like and if, I, he, if he did not want to be a father so so badly, he could have just gone to court and be like, hey, I don't want to be a dad. Here are my parental rights and I don't. And that's that. Well, see, and the thing is, is that, you know, he was mandated to pay um, several things for Annette. Mm-hmm. And um, if my child were so scared mm-hmm. and crying to go with somebody, I would not allow it. Mm-hmm. And I would give up any money mm-hmm. that I was getting to keep my child safe. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if he could have gotten, because it was proven that it was his child, if she would have had like major repercussions. Yeah. I, I don't know what would have happened in that situation, but she was fearful of that, that mm-hmm. he could come back and, and, file suit against her for whatever well he could because it was a court order yeah that he had visitation yeah and so i mean it's a difficult situation but i don't and i don't know how you would keep a child safe in that situation i I don't know what to do right you know i wouldn't have known what Mm -hmm. to do but um anyway did i answer your question Yes, I mean that's okay. the impression I got. I just wanted, I just wondered if they clarified that that was why he did it, or if that was just part of how he got his kicks too, is just doing stuff like that. Well, that's what they uh, once they found that out because they were like, "There's no motive. We can't go after this guy because we don't have a motive. There's mm-hmm. no reason." And that when they found out about the insurance, that's what they used for the motive. Okay. And um, he would go out and he would buy drinks for people, but. Um, and one of the other things that happened is that this, this detective had not met him, the new one, and she went to talk with him and um, under the auspice of trying to just wrap up this case. Mm-hmm. And as she was leaving, you know, she didn't get any new information mm-hmm. from him. But as she was leaving, he says, uh, you know, ask the question about when do you think that I'll hear from State Farm? Mm. Uh- and she's like, you know, not wanting to say that she's already on to him and mm. all that kind right. of stuff. So she just said, I, th- I think you'll hear from them soon. <laughs> yeah. You'll hear from them soon. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, got to wrap up this case and yeah, State Farm's mm. not going to pay out if they think you did it on purpose. Yeah. Right. Well, and they had contacted the insurance company and said, can you kind of delay, delay. <laughs> yeah, delay payments at this point? And they said that they were already delaying because they couldn't do anything until the autopsy was oh, complete. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there was already, you know, he hadn't gotten any money um, yet anyway. So, Jeez. yeah, very sad. At least your guy went to prison. He did, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You're all, he, your person died, died. natural causes your, your living out there. Fled to Italy. <laughs> yeah, he was in jail for a little while in Italy, but, but not for what not he did here in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Good grief. Well, and it's interesting too, thinking about other stories—not stories, but other cases mm-hmm. that we've read about. How one of them was like 20 years, mm-hmm. and this one's 5,000 <laughs> years. <laughs> So, oh, because he got out. Annette was pregnant with 
uh, child from her new husband, and so she couldn't go through the trial of, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff that was going on with that. It was just too much. Kind of, She kind of had bed rest kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And um, so they had to postpone the trial. Well, when they did that, they had to lower his bond so that oh, um, no. he could get out. And so he was out, yeah, for a while until they, they were able to have, she had the child and they could go back to court mm-hmm. with it. Mm. So... But I think one of the things that really helped their case, too, was the, um, so you talk about the different agencies. Mm-hmm. So she had contacted, Susan Couch had contacted the guy in Florida to um, to look at the autopsy again. And, and he's the one who came in and actually did the second autopsy. Because the ME, they would not look at it again. Mm-mm. They would not change their findings. Mm-hmm. And they did not want to do a second autopsy. Mm-hmm. They were just like, we did it. It's done. And um, so he comes in and does it. Well, then there's this whole thing about after the second autopsy, they still won't even look at the the new mm-hmm. findings. And they look at it and they're like... We still think it's undetermined, you know. Yeah. That sounds just like your tooth guy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't. They never want to admit that they're wrong. Yes. And also, it's like you're not really admitting that you're wrong. You admit you admitted an undetermined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you had been like, oh, this was infant death or whatever, you know, and then it's like, oh, but now you want me to change it to a homicide. That's me being wrong. Yes. So you came up with nothing. Right. I don't know what happened. Shoulder shrug. So he- and basically through some of his testimony in the trial, that's kind of what he did. He's like, he, he basically left it open that it could have been a homicide, mm-hmm. but he wasn't able to determine anything is kind of the way it was mm-hmm. played out. But there's another um, lady. Her name is Dr. Norton. And um, she is in Dallas. And, Uh, very well known in a lot of child cases and she actually exhumed lee harvey oswald because at for a while there was a conspiracy theory Mm -hmm. that the russian actually committed it and looked like him and all this stuff and he was the one buried there no that's not true (laughs) (laughs) but that's how she got her notoriety that and another case which was fascinating because it goes back to the sid's deaths Uh that um this one family up in the north um northeast five of the children died of sid's is Mm. what they said and she thought that was not that was suspicious yeah that's Mm. high percentage there but one of the doctors uh wrote some paper and said that you know kind of citing this case that it was hereditary well she started looking into it and um i think it was like 20 years after the last child died uh it was determined that she had killed them Mm. she had drowned a couple of them and i don't know smothered the other ones Mm -hmm. i can't remember exactly Mm -hmm. um but she was the last one who had been with them yeah and they had died and you know she said it was sids basically is Mm -hmm. what they determined and um they were talking about how whether i think it was in in this pursuit of justice i can't remember exactly 
some article that SIDS deaths are, you know, very prevalent, Mm -hmm. but they think that a lot of them are not really SIDS deaths, Mm -hmm. that they could be murder cases, really. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. anyway. That's a lot of murder. It yeah, is a lot of and that's our uplifting episode for today. Wow. Okay. Well, if there's one interesting thing that I could say about all this is that that like all the stuff we talked about and the the interconnectedness of so many things, or you know the the similarities in all these books and in all the books that that we have done so far, mm-hmm. it's like we're just seeing a lot of the same kind of stuff happening in a lot of these cases. Yeah. It's just. It's not good, but it's interesting. <laughs> yes, well, and I think it's it's interesting too with Denise's case where um, Linda was very uh, adamant about this is who mm-hmm. did it, and she pursued that, and you know nothing came of it, but she knew, and she was going to continue to be mm-hmm. um, to persevere through that, mm-hmm. and that's what Sharon Couch did too. She's mm-hmm. like, I know something was mm-hmm. not right. Annette knew something was not right. And they persevered through gathering their own information yeah. and trying to turn it over mm-hmm. and basically and what, helping to that's solve. That's what Grace Hummus mm-hmm. did. Yeah. And I think it ultimately through. comes down to here you are sharing this information with the police and they don't want to be shown up by some woman. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some exactly. untrained woman. Yeah. yeah. Well, in your case, she was kind of trained. No, she was a lawyer. She wasn't yeah, an investigator, investigator. Or a detective. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. being. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so, a lot of similarities, like you mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, until next time, this has been Do We Like Murder? Thank you for listening. <laughs>